Shooting it raw? Yes. Shooting it raw. Well, I'll just tell a little anecdote if I could. Um, in 2016, when I did my first Camino uh, trip, when we got to, to France, my son came with me unexpectedly at the last minute. So anyway, we were in France getting ready to start, and he looks at me and he says, Mom, why did you bring your travel clock? And I said, well, I've always traveled with my travel clock. I, I have to have it to help me get up in the morning. He said, Mom, it's on your phone. You have a, an alarm. And we kept, you know, everything that he, I'd pull up my flashlight. Why did you bring a flashlight? It's on your phone. And of course, the last thing was, why did you bring two cameras? You have a camera on your phone. So there's no doubt that having the camera on my phone has made me take more pictures, I would say, than I used to. But my default position is to take pictures of people as opposed to scenic uh, photography. Because I always think I, if I want to postcards, if I buy a postcard, it's going to be a better photograph than I could ever take. So I'm happy with that. Although I know the cameras are so good now on phones that you can take really, really nice photos. So anyway, I usually mainly to take images of people and where we are. Podcasting remotely can be a real pain. It's quite challenging, but it doesn't have to be. Zencaster has this all-in-one web-based platform and makes the process really quick and easy. That's the way it should be, right? Just focus on the podcast. So let's talk about the quality and the challenge of recording online. So Zencaster gives crystal clear sound and really nice HD video. I know I don't use it, but it's there. Now, that's not even to mention how easy it is to use. Like even for my guests that aren't even that tech savvy, there's nothing to download. They just click on the link and start recording. Zencaster is all about making your podcasting experience easy and everything from local recording to automatic post-production in the tool. You don't have to leave your browser to get the episode done. Maybe you want to make podcasts as well. I mean, I think it's a great idea personally. Obviously, I'm running one. I think you should make one too. It's easy. Just do it. I actually use Zencaster. If it sounds great, that's because the platform works. And if it sounds like crap, that's because I've done something wrong. But Zencaster really does give me amazing quality for my guests. If you go to Zencaster.com slash pricing, blah, 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 and enter this promo code, look, it's already long and confusing. And I'll just make it easier by putting the link and the promo code in the episode description. If you do that, you get 30% off your first three months. So that's actually pretty sweet. So look in the description for the link and the promo code, and then you get 30% off to, to start doing your own podcast. Do it. Go for it. Zencaster. That's it. Well done. Well, well no, I see these uh, other podcasts where people, for example, uh, let's say it's ran in Jerusalem running, you know, right, ran in right, Jerusalem, right. and then there'll be ran in Paris running, you know, and, right, so, right, and right. so they use their video part of their camera to take a picture of them every place they go doing sure. the same thing, whatever it is. And I always laugh at those, but I don't try to do that myself. Okay, so first I have to start from the top. So your name is Julie, Je okay, Janelle, Janelle, okay, it's a little small, 
Gianelloni. Connor? That's right. Gianelloni. Well, you're Ciao. making it very Italian, which is fine, but it's actually Corsican, which of course uh-huh. is French. Please. Hit me. <laughs> okay, we will talk to you like this. It is a Gianoloni. Uh, it is not too That's difficult. it. That's it. Okay. Very good, Ren. Merci, good. merci, merci. And, uh, uh, and as soon as I saw your name, I thought, I wonder if he's Palestinian, because I lived in Israel for four years. Oh, okay. Okay. My parents are born in Morocco. Uh, I was born in Jerusalem. Uh, I have an Israeli passport, so I don't really identify. I mean, look, the people from there, the, the difference is so marginal there's cultural difference but you know if we if we did an autopsy of all all of us we all look the same inside so right that's kind of my attitude well i didn't live in in jerusalem although i went there a lot but mm-hmm. i lived in tel aviv because that's where the u.s embassy was at the time oh, or wow, wow. in actually i lived in the suburbs the second time i was there because my son was in school but oh anyway um well, we digress <laughs> Yeah, but just looking at your bio, I thought, okay, well, we have some points of connection, if I can say that. Sure. Um, I, I, I love that, that this is like, you know, one person described it as a gift, like meeting people and connecting with people is kind of like un, uh, undoing a gift, you know, uh, let's say a Christmas gift. So now I ask you to s- send me four images. I have no idea what they are. That's going to frame our, co- our conversation I'll get to learn and share about you. And um, I'm super excited. So, yeah, the thing is, almost everybody I deal with is younger than me. I've gotten to that age. Mm. I remember when we didn't connect with people across Mm. the globe. Or if you did, it was by a long distance, very expensive telephone call. No, No video. I remember this, too. I remember this, too. So for me, it's all kind of magic. It is. It's magic. Absolutely. I agree with you. Shall we dive into your first photo? I'm super excited. Sure. Oh, look, what? Okay. Okay, what? Okay. Okay, so what we have is a photograph that somebody made from the audience onto a small stage with a black, black, black curtain. What really pops well, one of the things that tells me is that whoever made the photograph did it with a camera or whatever that accidentally focused on the, the U.S. flag in the background because that's in super sharp focus. So there are, seems to be one or two flags. There's one flag, which is U.S. flag, and I don't know the flag next to it. U.S. Department of State. Okay, U.S. Department of State. On the left is a woman looking to her left who is speaking from a, from a kind of a podium. And there's a woman at the podium, both looking at each other, almost like peers. Fascinating. Uh, I, I'll let you give, I'll, I'll leave a bit of a cliffhanger to say <laughs> who, the, okay, this is a really dramatic photo. So what am I looking at? So that's me at the podium. And yep. this is March, 2009. It's Women's History Month at the U.S. Department of State. And the organization of which I was the president and a founder was having our Women's History Month Day celebration. And the woman seated is Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. Boom. Yep. 
So I would say because of my career, which is my diplomatic career, mm. I had fabulous opportunities to meet presidents and prime ministers and Hillary Clinton and many other incredible people. So that is a big chunk of my life. 33 years of my professional life was as a diplomat. As it happens, I moved back from Hong Kong to Canada. So now I'm, I'm, we're talking, I'm in Vancouver. I just spent uh, a few, t I've met a few times with my, like a cousin and his father was a diplomat. And so that's how, you know, when we first met, it was in Ottawa, his dad was a diplomat. And so my experience of that whole world is obviously from many steps removed. But then when you say that, okay, so how, where do we, where do we go from, we just opened an incredibly amazing door. So I, I'm going to leave it to you. I'm just going to get out of the way. Please, please take over. So I went to graduate school to get my MFA in creative writing. And I had previously studied journalism at my state university in the summer times. So I really thought I was going to be a writer. Mm -hmm. And that's where my mind was set. And that's what I thought I was doing. But life gets in the way. And I figured out pretty quickly I had to have a paycheck. Mm. So then it was, well, what am I going to do for a career? Not a job, but a career. Because I wanted to have an actual career. And many twists and turns, but I ended up taking the U the Foreign Service exam, which is given and in those days was given once a year. Mm -hmm. It took me about three years from the time I decided to do this until I was offered a job. Wow. And I was incredibly lucky because the number of diplomats is very small. Mm -hmm. So I'm impressed that you have a relative who is a diplomat because most people have absolutely no idea what diplomats do mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. if they have an i if they have a impression of them it's that they're going to cocktail parties all the time and it's from the movies and yes it's living a good life and etc which is so wrong an impression of what diplomats do that i always am trying even now after i've retired to talk when i can about diplomacy Mm -hmm. Because it's so important, and particularly right now, because of the situation in Europe with the Ukraine. Yeah. So people don't understand diplomacy. They understand what the military does. They usually yeah. have a brother, a father, a son, someone who's been in the military. So they've gotten firsthand accounts of that, but they haven't met or talked with a diplomat. So it's kind of my continuing goal to tell people what diplomats do. Yeah. and. That profession has allowed me to travel the world. I had a relative by marriage who used to say that he got an all-expenses-paid all expenses trip to Europe. And of course, what he was talking about was World War II. <laughs> <laughs> so in my case, I got an all-expenses-paid trip to most of the world thanks to my job. Wow. So one of the, the, the missions of the podcast is to inspire listeners, right? It's to inspire people to realize, okay, we have one life. How do we make every second count? Um, because, you know, life is a gift. You got a master's in creative writing. So right. my first degree was in creative writing. And I know that when a child comes to their parent and say, I want to go study creative writing. And you can imagine, like... My parents wanted me to become a doctor and a lawyer, you know, first generation Canadians. And when I, and I was good in science, but then when I turned to them, I said, you know what, 
the thinking going on in the creative writing class is much higher than the thinking going on in like the physics and chemistry classes. So that's where I'm going. They were pretty uh, disappointed. And, um, and then you go for, for, for a master's and then you say that life got in the way. Well, maybe what it was, it was that the training you got in creative writing actually supported you becoming a super, a, a very accomplished diplomat. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know. No, I think you're absolutely right on that. I've always said that the humanities and the humanities degree teaches you critical thinking and good writing. Mm. And those are two skills that any diplomat has to have. Mm. So my humanities, both my undergraduate and then my master's degree, prepared me for the career. And by the way, as a diplomat, you write extensively sure. all the time because you're reporting back to Washington and it's usually in written form. And yeah. in my case, because of my specialty, I was writing speeches for the ambassador. I was writing briefing memos. I was writing press releases for the media. I was doing all of that. But it's mm -hmm. it's it's professional writing. It's nonfiction professional writing. It's not the kind of creative writing that you do in a MFA course. Mm -hmm. So it, I was writing for the whole 33 years, but not the kind of writing. Well, you know, I did my master's thesis. I did short stories. That's what went wow. into my master's thesis. So it was different writing. Right. But you're, you're, I totally agree. I, uh, as part of my master's degree program, I was as a teaching fellow is what they call it. I was teaching freshmen and sophomores. And they would come over and I, you know, I'd ask them what they were doing in their whatever other classes. It was mainly multiple choice and that kind of tests. Yeah. Whereas in my class, I had to write six essays a semester plus mm -hmm. a midterm and final with essays. So they mm -hmm. had to write. Mm -hmm. But the other professors in other disciplines weren't requiring that. I'm going to, okay, so I have, I have two questions I have to ask. Okay, so Hillary Clinton at that point, you'll have to remind me, what was her title? Secretary of State. She was Secretary of State, okay. And so can you remember that precise moment of whoever made that photograph, maybe what you were exchanging with her about? Like what, like just to give us some, some, some flavor of, of what your presentation was. Well, it was her first year, it was the first March that she was Secretary of State. So we were mm -hmm. thrilled that she agreed to be our keynote speaker for Women's History Month. Mm -hmm. And I was the president of the organization. So I was there to introduce her. And also at the end of the program, we gave her a plaque about mm -hmm. leadership. It's a beautiful quote that we had on leadership. And so she was, she got up and talked about her experiences as a woman, first in a law firm in Arkansas and so forth. And it was, it was very interesting to hear. She's a few years older than I am, but not much about what it was like to be a woman in a law firm, because some mm. of the things she talked about, I could say happened to me too, being the only woman in the room, being the, having to ask them to make decisions about your career that you didn't have to make before because they, they didn't have women. Sure. So, it was all very interesting, and I know everyone in the room was fascinated to hear what her background is and how she related to women coming up in a man's profession. Mm -hmm. There are, unfortunately, some women who experience that who think they're super women, and they did it, and they're right. not very sympathetic. It's magic. That, you know, they, they made it in a man's world, so everybody right. else should make it in a man's world. Oh, oh sorry, yeah. With, yeah. with no help. 
Whereas I believe we have a responsibility to help mm -hmm. younger women yeah. navigate. So, and she very much was in that line. You know, she said at her first law firm that she had had to, she asked them what their maternal policy was, their policy for maternal leave. Mater so there was none. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the senior partner wow. she was talking to asked her to design one. Yeah, yeah. So she had to write a policy and then try to get it approved. Wow. Um, I, I know we could easily lose ourselves in this one photo. You're very tricky. You're very, very tricky. Okay, so the one other question I want to ask was you, you wanted to, and, I, and maybe the other photographs do this, but um, just for now, just you said you wanted to help dispel or, or, or at least raise or increase people's awareness of what diplomacy really is. And I know we can't do it within an hour, let alone 15 minutes or so that each that I have for each photo, but what is the message that you, is there a message you want to give about uh, diplomacy to help people get their minds around it? I guess the overall message is American citizens, at least, and I'm sure Canadian citizens too, get their money's worth out of their diplomats. Mm -hmm. We are not a nine to five profession. And our informal motto is that we're the first line of defense. Mm -hmm. We're out there in all kinds of countries that tourists don't go. Mm -hmm. And we are there for a reason, to represent U.S. interests. So we do everything we can to represent the United States and to help American citizens who frequently, unfortunately, find themselves in need of help. Yeah. Whether it's they lose their passport or they get arrested or they have a, a health issue and they have to go to a hospital. They don't know the system. They don't know the language. They don't know how to navigate anything. Who do they call? You know, it's like... Ghostbusters, except it's yep. who they call. You call your embassy for help. Yep. And we are, we are love to help our citizens to do everything we can. So that's helping our citizens. But then there's this whole other aspect, which is being the representative of the United States government in a foreign country. Yeah. And so what we have to do is to project Americans' values and interests, but also to understand the country we're living in and sure. report that back to Washington. So sometimes, or to wherever, wherever the ca your capital is. Mm. Um, so this is, we're, we're boots on the ground. We're the first yeah. boots on yeah. the ground. It's not the military. The diplomats are already there and already reporting when, yeah. if the military then comes in. And so it's, it can be a very dangerous job. Mm. And diplomats do lose their lives. In fact, more ambassadors have been killed in the line of duty than generals since right. World War II. And most of us go to these dangerous places because we know somebody has to go, and so we, we volunteer. In my case, I volunteered, and I went to Colombia twice, oh, wow. uh, working in the narcotics affairs section, which is anti-narcotics work. You're not that ambitious. You're fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, the first time is when during the years of Pablo Escobar and the Cali and Medellin cartel, and it was... Yeah. <laughs> It was you know, uh, in, so you know in Hebrew uh, you've been to Israel you know you say is you went to the juice of the garbage <laughs> so you know in the garbage bag you have the juice inside that is really where it is at that was where you went yeah. well uh, it was a joke in my family my brother said wherever I went revolution broke out yeah wow wow <laughs> but it was the other way around really the revolution broke out and then I went I volunteered Amazing. to go. So, uh, uh, okay, well, uh, should we go on to the next photo? Sure.
Okay, okay, totally different feel here. It looks like the photo of a book cover, yes? That's right. And the, the title is Savoring the Camino de Santiago. It's the pilgrimage, not the hike. And it's like a little, it's like a collage. It's beautifully, beautifully designed, very warm colors. So there's one, two, three, four, five, six-ish. Well, it looks like a door, but they're like six-ish images in this like collage. One is of like somebody photographing their feet with their feet in tivas. One is just of a massive cauldron with like, it looks like a paella or something. Uh, one is just ladles maybe on the, on the wall. One is of a bus, a tour bus with a beautiful, uh, maybe a, I don't know. A cathedral. Church in the background. Right, a cathedral, yeah, yeah. And then inside the cathedral as well with a stained glass. Uh, so, so take us on your trip. What is this? So, as I said, I spent 33 years in the Foreign Service, but before I went to the Foreign Service, I had dropped out of college for three years and went to Europe. And I lived in Portugal and taught English in Portugal and then in Spain. And while I was in Portugal, I read a book recommended by my roommate called Iberia by an author named uh, James Michener, who used to be a really, really popular author. People have kind of forgotten about James Michener. But anyway, he wrote this book, Iberia, which I read. And chapter 13 in Iberia is about the Camino de Santiago. Hmm. So the Camino is a pilgrimage or an ancient pilgrimage route that goes back to 822 or 824, depending on who you believe, when the burial site of St. James the Apostle was rediscovered in northwestern Spain. So from that year, as soon as it was rediscovered and it was blessed by the bishop and then the pope that this is the burial site of St. James, pilgrims started walking. And of course, you know, we're talking about the 1200s, 1300s, 1400s. There weren't that many places that people went to, but they did do three big pilgrimages to Jerusalem, to Rome, and to Santiago de Compostela, which is the place where St. James is buried. And so all through the ages, people have been walking this route. But popularity after about 1400 decreased until after I read about it. So when I read about it, I was 21 years old. I said, I want to do, I want to go to this place. I want to see this historic site. And I thought I'm going to do it, but I can't. But I didn't have any money. I was living on the local economy in Portugal. I didn't have the time. So I just Mm. filed it away. But when I started thinking, okay, I'm going to retire now. I decided this was going to be my first long trip. And in the meantime, because of a series of factors, one of them is the movie The Way with Martin Sheen and Emilio Estevez came out. People became aware of the Camino de Santiago in a way they hadn't been. So this whole culture of walking the Camino popped up. And so in that 40 years between when I first heard about it and when I decided to do it, the culture became you have to walk the Camino. Mm. So I did. I, I walked the Camino along with my son. And I when I set out, I didn't plan to write a book. But at, by the end of it, I thought, okay, maybe there's a book here that I should write. Oh, wow. So how far is the, the journey itself? It's from wherever you want to start. Oh. But it must end in Santiago de Compostela. Mm-hmm. I say it must end. Some people will do it in stages. So they might do only have a week's vacation. They'll do one week and do it from here to there. And then the next year, they'll pick up and go from there to the next there right, and so right, forth. Right. But the, the most popular route is called the French route. And so you start in France, you go over the Pyrenees, and then you follow the most traveled route from the Middle Ages. 
So okay. that's the French route, and that's the one I did. It's 500 miles mm -hmm. from Saint Jean Pied de Port in France all the way to Santiago de Compostela. So it's interesting, Rand, that you brought up the cover because when I was doing my book, I knew I wanted a mosaic, but I didn't know how to make it. How do you know how to work it? How to frame mm -hmm. it? Mm -hmm. So I actually hired a, an artist to frame it for me. And he did, he came up with the framing that you saw, which That's I was great. very happy with. And then we had to get the photos. And then we started fighting a little bit on the okay, photos. Okay. Because I knew, for example, I wanted a food shot. I wanted yeah. a transportation shot. I wanted a cathedral shot. So I could say, I want, you know, from these different areas, I want a photo. But yeah. then, like for the food shop, he sent me things that were maybe really artistic, mm -hmm. but they didn't work as far as I was concerned. Yeah, it didn't, yeah. You know, it was like half a, a picture of sangria. And you would have to know it was a picture of sangria to figure right. out what that image was. So sure. I said, no, no, I just want something, you know, a whole picture of sangria or <laughs> paella. He said, mm -hmm. oh, no, that's too, that's too touristy. That's too common. <laughs> I said, look, this is being written for people who are going to be learning about the Camino. So anyway, but we ended up with the cover and I was really happy it's with great. it. Um, when, when did you finish writing this? Well, okay, that's a whole nother story. Um, when I came home in 2016, I thought I would write it in a year. But in 2017, Hurricane Harvey hit Houston, where I live. Mm. And so my house was flooded. And it took me 10 months, we were not in our house and trying to get it fixed and move back in. So the, you know, the time just keeps ticking on. And so in 2019, I said for my New Year's resolution, I'm going to finish this book. I think it's yeah. the only time in my whole life I've actually kept my New Year's resolution. <laughs> so. Now, listen, I, I, I am very pleased to say that you are the second person in Houston who was affected by Harvey, Hurricane Harvey, that I'm on, that I have on the podcast. The, my, the previous person, many, many episodes ago, his house was destroyed. Being in Hong Kong, I knew it was bad. And then seeing the photographs, I was like, oh, it's really bad. And then when we spoke, I really got a, a deep connection with how bad that was. So it's it's really fascinating that that as we talk, all these little things come up. So for example, one of the okay, so I, I mentioned that that what the mission of the podcast is, but the four main pillars are creative expression. So that's really about photography and art. Okay, less important for you. One of them is service leadership, which is something that I've focused on professionally, which you kind of talked about. Uh, and then the other one is um, strong women, which absolutely here you are. It's fantastic. And uh, there's another one that I don't remember at the moment. It makes me look really bad, but it doesn't matter. But the point is, well, creative expression, if actually writing is a creative expression, that's it. So sure. maybe not visual, but for sure. Absolutely. But I had, a, I had a real idea in my head of what I wanted the cover to be like. But I, I don't have the, the graphic skills or the phot photographic skills to be mm. able to do that myself. Okay. So I got someone and then we collaborated. I told him what my vision was and then he helped me realize my vision. For sure. For sure. And I mean, that's a book. That, that is a book. I mean, you create the narrative and you capture the narrative and you don't necessarily need to have the... Like in a certain way, like for example, one of the people on the podcast was, was talking about how... Um, Actually, maybe she lives in Texas as well. 
she might actually live in, in Houston as well. She's a she's Brazilian and she writes romance novels. And then she said that she writes her books in English. And then uh, I said, so have you translated it into into Portuguese, Brazilian Portuguese? And she goes, no, no, because they actually suggest that you don't do that, that if you are going to translate your book, that even if you have the language, you shouldn't do it because you're going to want to change it. And it, it makes perfect sense that you're going to be like, well, I need some help to create the cover because maybe you need that that other person to look at it and go, OK, well, let's work this through. I love it. It looks great. Absolutely. The artistic expression comes in many ways. But this is one thing about publishing nowadays. I took a lot of photos on the trip and mm -hmm. a, a lot of photos that you won't see else, elsewhere. But I couldn't publish them in my book in color as I would have liked to because the book would have cost so much nobody would buy it. Right, right. So I ended up only using black and white photos in my book, which are not the best. They mm -hmm. didn't translate from color photos to black and white as best. Sure. But I had my blog, so I published all of those photos on my blog. And I would tell, you know, I have it in the book, you know, readers should go to the blog to see the photos. But people so don't listeners, do that. Listeners should go to the blog, which is? Uh, CaminoForBoomers.com. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Let's see. At first, I thought I would be writing about the special circumstances or difficulties that older people have. Right. But it turns out that probably the majority of people walking the Camino are retired people because we have the time to do yeah. a, a long journey. So mm -hmm. anyway, I, along the way, I said, okay, I'm not writing this for boomers anymore. I'm just writing it for anybody. Yeah. Uh, you want you like to go to the next uh, image? Oh, this is so fun. This is so fun. I, I, so wait, wait. Before I do that, how many books have your name? Have you? How many books have you completed to date? Two. Okay. Respect. Respect. Um, so this one, savoring the Camino de Santiago. Uh, yeah, I love it. I love it. Makes me want to go on a journey. Amazing. Okay. Next photo. Well, here we go different it's, it's also a book cover and this one's called whiskers abroad ashi and audrey's adventures in japan oh wait a second this isn't I, this doesn't give the feel maybe it is a, a non-fiction book but i kind of get the feeling it's not it's got three uh very stylistic beautiful suitcases of small descending size kind of stacked on top of each other one side has a very kind of uh stylized it's sort of Japanese print with cranes on it. Sitting on one of on the base um, suitcase is a very nice gray cat. Is this your cat? No, it's not. Okay, a nice gray cat. Uh, behind, coming almost coming out of the cat's ear is uh, Japan. You know, kind of like the map of Japan. Not too too um, uh, detailed, but you know you can sort of see. And then the background is kind of like a map. So it gives like this feeling of, of adventure and it's like a map of kind of a slice of Asia. And so tell us about Whiskers Abroad. So this is, I did not write this book, but oh. I am publishing this book. Oh, so okay. great. Because this besides, is written by Carrie Carter. Right. Besides being an author myself, I also have this micro press that I run. Carrie Carter is my latest author and she wrote this wonderful book called Whiskers Abroad, Ashi's and Audrey's Adventures in Japan. So 
as a publisher, I set out what areas I wanted to work in. So travel, international affairs, history, and anything to do with Houston. So (laughs) Carrie, Carrie Carter walked across my transom and here she is in her book meets two of the four categories. I read it and it is so hilarious. Okay. The way it's written is a writer is invited to go to Japan to write a a magazine article. And she goes, but she takes her cat with her. So her cat's (laughs) name is Ashi. So the book is arranged every day of their trip. The writer, whose name is Audrey, she gives her retelling, her recounting of what happened that day. And then Mm -hmm. the cat tells you what really happened. And it's like, you can't believe the difference between these two versions of what happened. The cat is so funny saying, you know, every day he's saving the woman from sure disaster. (laughs) You know, he's rescuing her. He's her cat in shining armor. And the things he's, you know, just the the craziness that that she has or she does, it's it's so funny. But to answer your, your first comment, you're absolutely right. When I first got this book, I thought, huh, what am I, how am I going to classify this? Is it fiction? Well, yeah, a cat can't write and talk. But right. it's also nonfiction because the information about Japan that you mm. get as you read the book is fabulous. It's fabulous right. for a first-time person going to Japan. What should I see? What should I do? Where should I go? So mm. it's both nonfiction and fiction. And so we talked about it a while and worked on it. And we ended up, we call it a travel log, which yeah. is really okay. what it is. Kind of in the mode of what, for example, Mark Twain used to do when he would mm. do these travel books. They were mm-hmm. part real and part made up. And that's what this book is. When I saw it, uh, I, for some reason, made the connection to Haruki Murakami. In Murakami's books, he always has a cat, right? And the thing about Murakami, which is great, is that I think most of the Japanese books that I've read tend to be kind of traditional very kind of mired in tradition, in the history of the great Japan. Whereas Murakami, it's like, you know, today, you know, guy's got a, you know, jazz bar and, and it's all, it's very contemporary. And uh, so then as you're telling me about kind of what it's like, you know, you've got the cat. I could totally see how somebody writing who has a, a flair for this could really, because to go traveling with your cat is itself kind of <laughs> peculiar. I love it. It's really funny. Right. And the other thing, you know, for me, it's so interesting. My son has been telling me for years, Mom, you should write a graphic novel, which I don't think is my skill set. But this book is not a graphic novel, but it is heavily visual. Right. We have a designer, Stacey Vickers, and she is incredible. I mean, every page is a visual delight. Nice. So, and you see Audrey and you see Ashi, the cat, and they're in Japan and you're going... How did she get these images? You know, oh, wow. how did she get these images? <laughs> and so, but it's it's wonderful. It's wonderful to look at, just to yeah. look at. How do people get this book? Well, it's not even out yet. It's up for pre-sale on oh, Amazon. You're just teasing us. <laughs> well, we at first I thought we were going to launch it in June, and then we okay. decided to delay it a little bit so we could give it more pre-sale publicity. Mm-hmm. So it's up on Amazon now for sale. Nice. Nice. And we're giving it a special pre-sale price to try mm-hmm. to boost the number of people that will buy it and then start spreading it. Because sure. I, I promise you, anybody that reads this book is going to love it. Yeah, yeah. 
It's got so oh. much going for it. I mean, they're the cat lovers. They're the yeah, people yeah. who are travel, who like travel. Mm-hmm. They're the mm-hmm. people who want to learn about Japan. It's yeah. just, it hits so many things that people can love about it. This person who gets uh, some training in creative writing suddenly realizes, wait a second, I need a career, goes into the foreign service, becomes a diplomat, travels the world, comes back to the U.S., does all of these highly focused, supportive programs to help women also kind of develop however they will. And then you kind of go through this thing to write a book, you write your book, and then you decide to be, I'm assuming this is the the sequence, and then you decide to be a book publisher. How do you explain that evolution? See, for me, it's a circle. Remember I said I started out thinking I was going to be a writer? Yeah. And then I went through this career and then I retired and I'm back to being a writer. Mm. The additional piece besides just me going through what I, you know, continuing to do what I always did writing, but now doing it myself as opposed to the government, is there's been a revolution in the publishing industry, just like there's been a revolution for newspapers. Mm-hmm. All of those newspapers that have folded, now we're down to four or five really big newspapers in the U.S. and that's it. Yeah. The same thing has happened in publishing. Of all the publishing houses that used to exist, there are four really big New York publishers now. But there's mm. been an explosion of small presses and independent right. presses. And, uh, and so when I realized that if I wanted to go with a traditional New York publisher, it was going to be at least three years by the time okay. you find an agent and then the agent places your book and then they edit your book and then they do advanced marketing. That's a minimum is three years. And it gets a window of about one to two months of actual promotion and then... That's correct. And that's if they accept your book, which there's no yep. guarantee. So yep. I said, I'm too old. I can't wait three years for this to happen. So I went to start learning about another route. And the new route, of course, is because of printing and digital printing and yep. printing on demand, you don't have to go through a big press. You can go through a small press. And so I'm learning all these things. I'm taking courses on publishing. I'm finding out about publishing. And then it occurs to me, I'm spending more time learning than I really ever planned on. But if I have to do it for me, I might as well offer this to other people as well. Right. So that's when I said, okay, I'm going to be a publisher. You're such a mensch. <laughs> the thing is, uh, I have absolutely bad timing, though, because I opened my micropress, which is what I call it, right before COVID hit. Um, okay, now I would like you to do a little uh, thought experiment. Think about all of the people on the planet. All of them having, you know, in their month, aspirations or dreams to do something. Some of them are, you know, ambitious and maybe most of them are not. And pretty much everybody I've talked to said, and then the pandemic happened and that just changed everything. Like with you. But here you are, like Whiskers Abroad. Look at that. It's amazing. So the interesting thing for me is because of the pandemic, because I couldn't do what I thought I was going to be doing, which was go to a lot of book festivals and go out and be marketing my book in person. I couldn't do that. Mm -hmm. I was Mm -hmm. trapped at home. But that led to me, my book, my first book, Savoring the Camino, for example, I made it into an audio book, which I would never have done otherwise. You reading or somebody else reading? Well, somebody else reading, but it's a whole process to find your narrator and then work with them to get your audio book up. Anyway... 
I thought I would only have originally the paperback and an ebook, but I ended up with those two plus the audiobook plus a hardback, which I never planned to do. Wow. I wouldn't have done except I had the time to work on that during mm-hmm. the pandemic. And the second book I wrote, it's also, it was a pandemic project. I would never have done that because I already knew what I wanted my second book to be. And it wasn't this, but for my second book, I had to travel, couldn't right. travel during COVID. So I did something else. And so I came up with a book, which I never planned to do. And I also have, uh, I started writing short stories again, going back to my beginning. That's what I okay. did. And I submitted them to different competitions and four of, four of my stories then went into story anthologies. Nice. And that's another area I would never have explored except for the pandemic. So fantastic. I kept myself busy. <laughs> so just to kind of weave in the little bits that I can. So I was super science oriented. And then I did this one course in the college uh, in the short story. And then the professor read, you know, a short story from Anton Chekhov. And that one class completely changed my whole thinking and essentially rechanneled my life. So how do we tie all this back to raising awareness of what it is to be a diplomat? Tie it all back. Well, I think people should think of a diplomat as being their eyes and ears overseas. As I said, the first line of defense, we let people know should you go to Israel right now? Is it a good time to visit Israel? Because we post travel warnings, travel right. advisories. And if you contact the embassy, they will tell you what they think the situation or is. Kong. Or Hong Kong, wherever. And we feed all that information back to the American public through websites, our embassy mm-hmm. websites, but also through the Department of State. Mm. So I continue, I think, to be eyes and ears, but about the whole world. Right. So I think I mentioned earlier, I was actually scheduled to do a podcast on the day that Russia invaded Ukraine to talk mm. about my books. Right. But I started out talking about Ukraine yep. and about the importance for the world of what was going on. Mm. And most Americans at that point still really didn't understand what was happening. I Okay, so Ukraine happens... My, my head explodes. I've had a couple of, I've been trying to have more people connected to the Ukraine on the podcast, and I've had two so far. Um, one of the comments that I heard recently was she thinks or she proposed that, well, you know, people really notice what's going on in Ukraine because the people there are a lot like us. They're white and they're middle class and whatever. How could this happen over there? I mean, there are so many other conflicts that we could also be paying attention to. But I've also read and felt the analysis that this is actually a very different kind of, of conflict. So so get feeding from your experience. Oh, you, you got me riled up. Feeding from your experience. How would you say or is the the what happened in Ukraine different or Is it a watershed moment? Is it what people think it is? Yes, it is a watershed moment. Starting at the end of World War II, the United States, working with its allies, created a world order, a system, a framework for international affairs. And because of that framework that was created, there have been no major wars in Europe since 1945. Yeah. 
this framework established peace in Europe. And now, because of Ukraine, the framework has been challenged. Yeah. And if Russia wins, it will be essentially shattered. Right. So who knows what the future will bring? Do we go back to great power rivalry as we had in past centuries, where Germany might fight France or Germany fight Russia, or who knows? Mm. The Russians have said, we do not accept the current world system. Now, yeah. although that world system was very effective in Europe, it was less effective in other parts of the world for various reasons. But still, for many years, we, have, we haven't had another world war. Yeah. We've had a lot of regional wars, a lot of smaller wars, but it's kept us from a world war. And Russia is trying to break that system. Yeah. And I know that's a very difficult question. And I know that uh, we have to move on to the next photograph. <laughs> uh, you know, I wish my podcast isn't at this stage where people, where it's kind of like video and audio, but you have a warmth to your smile and your face that comes to me through the audio. And uh, yeah, like I, I really appreciate your time. Well, wow, I'm like, I feel like I'm at the table with a master. This is great. Well, thank you, Ben. I, I love my career, my di diplomatic career, and I love my current work in writing. So I'm mm -hmm. glad that my enthusiasm about both areas comes through, even just in an audio presentation. Oh, for sure. For sure it does. Let's go to the next photo. Okay, now, yeah, look what, okay, so this photograph is mind-blowingly amazing. Okay, so do you know who the photographer is? Is it you who made this photograph? Talk about the photograph a little bit, Ram. <laughs> okay, so it's a super beautiful, in terms of, if you're into uh, the visual element of, of how photographs are, are rendered, it's a, a hyper-crisp, beautiful shot of a church and in front of the church i'm assuming it's a church yeah it's a church in front of the church is this white horse wearing the various i don't know horse you know the bridle and all this stuff with the with the saddle and on it i can't tell who it is but it's a, a person a figure smiling with potentially jeans and a jacket is that you that's me <gasps> what a great photo <laughs> it's so, so good again talking about going back to the beginning yeah. i grew up not in a city but in the country so mm -hmm. i grew up riding horses i've always loved horses nice and another way to experience the camino de santiago is to ride a horse to go by horseback okay so the photo is actually of me in front of the cathedral it's in santiago de compostela there are not many people who ride horseback on a pilgrimage, and yeah. there are very few people who get that photo, which is one person, me, on a horse, in By front themselves. of the cathedral, nobody else. Because Amazing. usually in that square in front of the cathedral, it's thronged with pilgrims yeah. and so forth. So this is an incredibly incredible uh, shot. So to answer yeah. your first question, that photo was taken by another person who also did this horseback Camino with oh. me. And um, I, you know, I passed people my, pho my phone so they could take a picture of me on horseback on the, on the trip. Can you talk about the architecture? Because I'm 
too dumb to, to really address it because it's a beautiful, beautiful cathedral. So the sky behind is very wispy clouds, high cirrus clouds. So a little bit of blue, a little bit of white. It looks like it's morning, maybe hard to know, uh, or dawn or something. And the cathedral itself is like the stone is kind of brown and ash. And then the, 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 the windows really make this nice sort of bluish reflection of the sky. And it's kind of echoed in your clothing and this white horse. I mean, like it's, this image is, is so good. So can you talk about first of all, either the architecture or, or, or when you look back and you think back and when you look at this image, what is the, the essence of, of why this is such a, a potentially inspiring image? Well, again, almost nobody does a horseback Camino. So right. that in itself makes it unique. But to have that image of me, only me and my horse, whose name is Picasso, in front of the <laughs> cathedral is incredible. Awesome. So the one of the problems I have as a writer is I tend to write niche books. So this is a niche of a niche of a niche book. So, you know, who's mm -hmm. going to buy the book? But anybody who really wants to have a unique experience, this is going to be my next book is why it's the last photo I sent okay. to you. I'm going to, I've already written about walking the Camino and now I'm going to write a smaller book about riding the horseback riding. So the art and architecture is one of the things I love. And in my first book, there's a lot of art and architecture and it's something, you could do an art history course by walking the Camino. For sure. Because, you know, you start at, you'll see Romanesque churches, and then you'll see low Gothic and middle Gothic, high Gothic, and then you go on to everything from Rococo to Baroque to all of this. But this cathedral, the specific one in Santiago, is the, the third church that was built on this site. So in 822, they built the first one. It was just a tiny place. Then all these pilgrims started coming, so they built a bigger one and then mm -hmm. you know and then more and more people are coming so they built the cathedral which is there now and it is a gorgeous cathedral and they've just finished fixing it up repairing it cleaning yeah, it, it doing everything that they needed to do to get ready to get ready for this this year and last year which are jubilee years okay. they're special years when a door called the holy door is opened and as a catholic if you believe in what the church tells you if you walk through that holy door, you get special indulgences, which mm -hmm. cuts off the amount of time it takes you to get to heaven, as opposed to spending more time in purgatory, where you have to make up for all your sins while you were <laughs> on earth. Anyway, it's a special year, so they did a lot of work in cleaning it up. And it's a beautiful cathedral. It's, it's Gothic, um, and it's not as magnificent, I would say, as two other cathedrals on the route, which are the cathedral in Burgos and the cathedral in Leon. That shot that I did before on the cathedral windows on my sec my first book, that's right. the stained glass windows from Leon Cathedral, and they are spectacular. Wow. This cathedral is it's it's spiritual and emotional because mm -hmm. you go there and you know that St. James is buried there, but it's been the place where millions of pilgrims over the years have come. So it's a, you know, you feel all the way along the Camino that you're traveling in the footsteps of so many other people who've come before right. you. Yep, I know that feeling for sure. Basically, you know, you walk around the old city of Jerusalem and you're very much aware of, oh, wow, this is like where people walked 2,000 years ago getting their produce and 
doing their their and there's a connection do you feel that in doing this pilgrimage like how did that shape your subconscious there are going to be things that bubble up from your subconscious that are not necessarily significant or they're meaningful to you but aren't keys to some other world but as a subjective experience as you doing this on a horse which is a very intimate connection to another being because you are basically being carried and, and like I know enough about horses to know that some of them are jerks and some of them are sweet and some of them, you know, so, so why don't you talk about what that was like to be on a horse and how that infused itself into your, your subconscious? Well, uh, I mentioned I grew up riding, but because of my profession and my life, I haven't ridden much in my older adulthood. So I knew I was going to have to train for this adventure. Mm -hmm. I started riding in May, and I quickly realized that things weren't quite right. Uh, um, I should be getting accustomed to riding, but I was in a lot of pain. And right. I mean, after an hour on horseback, I was in a lot of pain. It's and tough, to do yeah. this Camino, I would have to be on horseback four to six hours a day. Wow. So I kept training all summer, and at the end, I said, okay, either I cancel and don't go, or I just accept that I cannot do this the way I thought I was going to do it. Maybe I'll sure. just ride a, one hour a day and that's it. That's all I can do. So um, that I contacted the trip organizer and they said they could accommodate that. So I just okay. went on. So I would say that what, what happened to me, it, it's, I don't know, I don't want to overemphasize this, but I was not aware I had back problems and I learned I had back problems and that's what's mm. causing the pain. And it's like, all right, I'm not, 50 years any old anymore. I'm not even 40. I mean, mm. 60. I I am getting up there and I have to accept this. Right. And I have to accept that my ambition and my desire, sometimes they just, it won't happen. I can't do sure. it. I have to be willing to settle for less. And that's, for me, hard. So, I want to say, sister, you're hitting home because, uh, yeah, I uh, I just hit 50 or I'm hitting 50 or whatever. And, and, and I know it's essentially over time, it just the curve just decreases. But, you know, life is a gift and we make the most, we make every second count. Seems to me that the ambition or the vision or the aspiration of, oh, I'll ride for six hours a day and it'll be great. And then you're actually on a horse for an hour and you're just like, you know what? This is a lot. <laughs> you know, my body is not quite up to the challenge. So it's a very, it's a very um, meditative Zen awareness, I guess. I mean, you tell me. Well, the, the interesting thing was I me. Mean, I, I ended up I'd never done it in all my training, but I rode four hours, the days that four hours had to be ridden. I rode one day, six hours. And one day, another day was supposed to be six hours. I only rode four hours, but I didn't think I could do that. And I really couldn't do that. And the only way I did it was I was praying constantly after about mm. the first hour. I prayed more in that Camino than I prayed since I was probably a teenager. So, and, and you're right about the connection between a person and a horse. I love horses, but to be on horseback and to be out in the countryside and the nature and going along and the experience of being with a community of other pilgrims, it was all very, you know, it's an experience that I will never have again. And it was unique. 
people talk about walking the Camino as being unique, but you know, I could go back next week and walk the Camino again. Mm. I'm, I'm never going to be able to go back and ride <laughs> the Camino. I just can't do it. So were you always on that particular horse? Yes, that was my designated horse for the, for the trip. Picasso is one hell of a good-looking horse. He was a gentleman the whole way. Amazing. Amazing. Julie, the the uh, the conversation is already it's already done. <laughs> it's so great. So when I, when I picked my photos for you, I wanted to just do one about my past as a diplomat, one yeah. about my present as an author, mm-hmm. one about my present as a publisher. Mm-hmm. And what about my future, which is a book I'm going to write about riding the Camino. So you've seen four times in my life. You delivered. Thank you so much. This was great. Rand, thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you and through you to your audience. And sure. boy, maybe we can meet in Jerusalem sometime in the future. <laughs> Next year in Jerusalem. Jerusalem exactly. <laughs> or Houston. <laughs> you know, Houston is the Jerusalem of the United States. I don't think that. Houston is an <laughs> underrated city. It's a fabulous place. I loved Houston. I've been there once. I loved it. Shooting it raw? Yes. Shooting it raw.